Well, good morning. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks Church. As Jimmy said, it is an exciting day, uh, and, and it's exciting for our kindergarten through fifth graders because it's the first day of Junior Oaks. So if you are one of our Junior Oaks, if you're a kindergarten through fifth grader, can you put your hand up right now? If you're in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. Now, Doug, you don't count, but I did see Lucia, Brooks, my son's right here. Got to worship with him this morning. Judah is over here. Awesome. I want to I speak to you guys right now. I see Jonah back there. I want you to look around the room. Look around. All right. I want you to know that the people in this room love you very much. This is your church family. The people in this room care about you knowing God. It's the most important thing you could ever know of all the things that you could ever learn in the whole wide world. It's understanding the breadth and height and width of God's love for you. We love you and Jesus loves you even more. And so one of the ways that we can show that for, for you is by having this time each week where, where you worship with us and then you get to go out to your own teaching time and then you come back and join us to, take, to watch us take the Lord's Supper, to ask questions and then to, to worship with us again. And so if you are one of our Junior Oaks or if you're a Junior Oaks parent, I want you to uh, go ahead and make your way to our volunteers in the back. We've got the Max and the Jacksons. They are wearing bright orange shirts just in case you couldn't see them. You can go ahead and Take them back now. They'll be joining us whenever we take Lord's Supper here in a little bit. Now, it's also an exciting day for our church because we're doing something after our gathering today that we call Evangelism Sunday, and it's exactly like it sounds. So after church today, we're going to have lunch after church at the Oakley Kitchen for anybody that wants to join us. And then after that, we're going to take six teams and go throughout different neighborhoods in our city. We'll have two teams in this neighborhood. And we're going to knock on doors, give people gift bags, ask if we can pray for them, and then invite them to join us for church. I know that that can sound intimidating maybe for some people at first glance, but here at the Oaks, one of the things that you'll learn if you're new here or by way of reminder, if you're someone who's been here for a long time, is we believe that every member is a missionary. And so there are kind of these two themes that you see throughout the Gospels. There's this idea uh, that we, we tell people, come and see, come and see who Christ is, come and see this God who saves. But then we're also given the command to go and tell, to ask the question, who's close to me but far from God, and how can I bridge that gap? How can I be one who, who shares this good news with others? And so I invite you to join us this afternoon. Come, come to lunch. If you didn't sign up, that's okay. There was no sign-up sheet. Uh, it's just going to be we're going to sit up at, sit at lunch and say, hey, who wants to go share the gospel? If you're thinking, I do not uh, know if I can have that conversation yet, that's okay. You can be the person on the sidewalk holding all of the gift bags while someone else is having the conversation. Uh, I would just say, hey, let's share this good news to Cincinnati. Uh, that, we, that we have to share. Now, we're gonna be continuing a study through the book of Romans, as you saw in the video, called Foundations of Our Faith. So if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Romans chapter seven. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's okay. We would love to gift you one. We have several on the table back there. Please grab one of those before you leave today. The scripture will also be up on the screen behind me. Now, Romans seven is an important chapter because there are, there's a lot of confusion that sometimes surrounds Roman chap, Romans chapter 7 because Paul switches into the first person. He is talking about someone personally. 
And I think what we, what we find as we look at this chapter is that Paul is talking about his own personal experience. As you read through Romans chapter 7, there are moments that you almost forget that you're reading Scripture, and it feels like you're reading one of your own journal entries. As he's talking about the, the weight that he felt whenever God's good commands came to bear on him and he realized that he was a sinner, it, it reminds you of maybe the way that you felt whenever the gospel first began to make sense, that, that you're a sinner in, in light of a holy God. Uh, whenever he's going to talk about what we're going to get to next week, where he's saying, I want to do good, but then I still find myself doing evil. And somehow it's almost like this law that every time I try to do something good, there's, there's something that's tempting me to do the wrong thing right in the way. And so because this is such a complex chapter, I want to walk through it really slowly. So we're going to look at verses 7 through 12 today. And today what we're going to see is that God's law, the Ten Commandments, the 613 commandments that we find in the Old Testament are all really good. Uh, they're, they're so good because they actually show that we are sinners. Now, that doesn't feel good to begin with, and yet, as we understand the height of our sin against God, we'll fully grasp the depth of God's grace that covers it. Uh, we'll learn more about the character of God in that these commands are good because they're given by a good God. In fact, these commands, although we are no longer under them as a way to earn our way to God, we find that they are a gift from God to teach us how to live to walk in communion with him. Now, just to un help you understand why maybe reflecting on the law is so important, I want to tell you about something that happened to me a couple years ago. Now, many of you know that whenever uh, the, the Oaks Church was first getting started in 2016, 2017, we had groups from all around the country come up and support us, serve with us, uh, host block parties, and do service projects with you know, different organizations throughout the neighborhood just because uh, many people didn't know who we were. We didn't know many people, and so we wanted to uh, be a part of serving others, and we needed a lot of people to come help us do that. So uh, in 2017, there was this group from Knoxville, Tennessee that came up about uh, 15 people, some of them, it was their first time ever, you know, going on a, a mission trip specifically. And I always love whenever people that are not from Cincinnati come to Cincinnati because I want to see the look on their face the first time they eat Skyline Chili. Uh, I want to take them to a Reds game and for them to experience just how electric it is whenever we're good. Um, I, we, you know, there are so many things that I love about Cincinnati that I want to share with people. And so there, uh, there was this group from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I accidentally shared this experience with them of almost getting arrested in Cincinnati. We'll get there in a second, okay? So we're, you know, we'd been serving all day. It's getting late. It's around 9 p.m. And we're walking down Vine Street. We're eating Grater's ice cream. And I say, okay, this is, this is a good Cincinnati experience. But for you to really take in just the majesty of Cincinnati, we're going to need to go to Davu Park. We're going to need to go across the river to Covington so that you can see the skyline lit up at night in, in all its beauty. Now, it was dark, like I said. And so as we're going into Davu Park, it was so dark that I did not see the sign that says park closes at dusk, off limits after 9 p.m. Okay, well, that's obviously going to play into the story. And so uh, there we were, we're, we're sitting up there in Davu Park and the stadiums are lit up, you know, the bottom of the skyline, the Roebling Bridge is stretching across the river, you know, it's beautiful. I'm talking about how this was the prototype for, you know, the, the 
Brooklyn Bridge in New York. And, you know, like I heard that somewhere. So it always sounds good whenever I say that to people. And then I'm talking about, you know, how uh, we're the Queen City. And so Great American Building has this tiara on it. And, you know, I'm going on. The Karoo Tower is built in 13 months. It's a great feat of ingenuity. And many of you have heard me nerd out about Cincinnati just because I'm like, yeah, I love this. And about that time, red and blue lights start flashing behind us. And I'm thinking, oh, no, like what, what is the problem somewhere else in this park that is not us? And what I soon found out is that the officer was looking for this group of trespassers that had shown up in some van. Uh, little did they know that like Oak City Baptist Church is on the side of this van, you know, of uh, just hoodlums that had come into Davout Park. And so you know, he's looking for these trespassers and we were the prime suspects. And so he pulls up, he shines his flashlight, bright flashlight right in our direction and nobody knows what's going on. And I turn around and I begin to walk to him and he says, hey, please stop where you are. Uh, do you understand that this park is off limits? And I was like, yeah, I, I had no idea. And then he, then he begins to cite the Covington Code of Ordinances, chapter 94, item 15, letter D. You can look this up right now. And it literally says, let me read this to you because this was shocking to me and I want to, I want to save you from this trouble. It shall be unlawful for any person to willfully enter upon or remain within any city parks during such hours as the parks are closed to public use or on other property owned by the city that is closed to the public. Such presence shall be grounds for immediate arrest. All right, that's pretty serious. Well, so here I am not thinking that it is that big of a deal whenever he says, do you know that right now, if, if I didn't let you off with a warning, this would be an arrestable offense? And my heart sank because I'm looking across at Miss Dorothy from Knoxville, Tennessee, who has lived 65 years of her life without getting a parking ticket. Now she's come on a mission trip to Cincinnati with this guy and she's gonna get arrested. And so I'm like, I'm like, hey man, I didn't know. Like, I'm not even from here, I'm from Florida. You know, I mean, everybody there's messed up, like, you know. And so I'm like trying to like plead my case and he lets us off with a warning. Now, why do I tell you that story? Two reasons. One, I don't wanna bail any of our church members out of jail for making the same mistake that I did. But second, because I want us to see, maybe even as silly as that is, that an unfamiliarity with the law, the consequences of the law, and, and the gravity of breaking the law matter. If we are unfamiliar with God's law, could it be that we have sinned, transgressed, rebelled against a holy God who would be just and righteous, to punishment, and to sentence us to eternal condemnation. And yet many people would just say, oh, God, God's loving, God's gracious, it doesn't matter how I live. Those old archaic rules from Exodus, they, they don't matter. Could it be that if you're not familiar with God's law, that you kind of created this standard that doesn't even exist by God, that you've, you've, you feel this unnecessary guilt because you think, well, this is what a Christian looks like, and this is what a Christian should do, and this is, how, this is how you're right with God, and you just kind of define yourself on this performance treadmill that's constantly speeding up, and you don't feel any closer to God because you've made up your own rules. You see, it is deeply important to be familiar with God's law because it exposes our sin. It shows us the depth of God's grace. It's important for us to, to be familiar with God's law because it teaches us about his good character and because it teaches us how to live. 
Now, whenever we see the word law in the Old Testament, it's referring to the first five books of the Bible. Uh, oftentimes, it's referring to the Ten Commandments that we're very familiar with. Uh, a lot of times, whenever you see the word law, it's referring to the 613 commandments that are given throughout the Old Testament. And so, many of us wonder, you know, the people of Israel, they knew how the law applied to their lives. A lot of Christians are like, I don't know. I don't know what to do with this. We saw in Romans 6 and the beginning of Romans 7 that we're dead to the law. We no longer live under the law. We live by the Spirit. So, so what place does this have in our lives? Well, I hope to make the case today that in Romans 7 verses 12 through, or 7 through 12, we will see that God's commands are good because they expose our sin, reveal God's character, and teach us how to live. God's commands are good because they expose our sin, reveal God's character, and teach us how to live. Now, if you're new to the book of Romans, I want you to know that this was written by the Apostle Paul, a guy who was uh, very religious, he was a Pharisee, he was very self-righteous, and God saved him out of that self-righteousness, showed him that he was a sinner, as we'll see here, and redeemed him. And now he lives as a missionary. He's someone who's telling other people about the good news of the gospel, that they can be saved. And one of, the, one of the places that he wants to go is Rome. He had never been to this church in Rome before, and he wants to take a trip there. And so he sends this letter called Romans to the church in Rome, preparing his way so that he can say, hey, this is what I teach, this is what I believe, this is how you can know that I am credible. And in chapters 6 through 8, he's, he's teaching us about sanctification, right? So you become a Christian, and then the process of sanctification is this gradual and tangible growth throughout your life, where, where you turn away from sin and that you reflect Christ in obedience to God's word. Now, with that being said, I want to read Romans 7, verses 7 through 12, and then we'll just kind of work through the question he gives, the answer, and I'm going to give you five really practical ways to apply this this week. Verse 7 says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, here's the question that Paul is going to propose right here in the beginning of verse 7. It is this, are the commands the problem? He says in verse 7, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? Now, we're, we're going to get to his argument and what he's teasing out for us here, because this is kind of a sidebar in response to something that he just said in verse 5 before this. As Paul is going through chapters 6 and 7, he's asking these rhetorical questions that he anticipates someone would ask whenever they hear his explanation of the gospel. And so one of the things that he said at the beginning of chapter 7 is that you are no longer under the law. You are dead to the law. The law is no longer your standard of righteousness, your measure of righteousness before a holy God, because you now live by the Holy Spirit. But the question from verse 7 arises from what he said in verse 5. He said, For while we were living in the flesh, 
our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now think about that for a moment. What he just said is that God's commands, whenever we saw God's commands, they revealed that there was sin in our heart. In fact, the more we understood God's commands, the more our sinful hearts wanted to rebel against God and say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do whatever I want. And so someone could hear that and think, well, if God's law showed me that I'm a sinner and God's law made me want to sin even more, then maybe God's law is the problem. Maybe it's not me to blame. It's, it's just the fact that there's this law that God put on me that made me sin even more, trying to shift that blame. To use an analogy, it would be uh, like me saying that I want to have children that are perfectly obedient. And so the easiest way that I can have a child that is perfectly obedient is to never give them any rules at all. Right? So if I never tell my two boys that I have to clean up their toys after they play with them or brush their teeth before bed or not punch their brother, like if I don't say those things and give those rules, well, then there are no rules to break. So is it my fault as a parent whenever I give rules and then they disobey them and, and then become disobedient children? No, not at all. Well, Paul is kind of using that same logic here because he anticipates that someone will say, well, if God would have never made any commands in the first place, there would be no commands to break. We would never have sinned against him. We would never face this guilt. We would never be deserving of wrath. Maybe it's God's law that is the problem. Maybe that is where the sin is. And so he asks, is the law sinful? Now, I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking, okay, maybe that's something that Paul dealt with but I don't really think that that's like a question I would ask. I don't think that the average person that's, you know, sitting in class next to me or the person that I work with is really asking that question, like, is God's law sinful? And while it may seem like a hypothetical question that you would never need to worry about, how often do people try to explain away God's commands? They say, no, I'm not the problem here. It's actually God's commands that are the problem. The problem isn't with me. The problem is with what Scripture says. You hear things like, well, that was just for that time period. That, that can't apply now. Or, well, that isn't realistic in this day and age. Or things just don't work like that anymore. Let's get a little more specific. You might hear someone say, well, I know what the Bible says about sexual purity. But is it really possible to know who would be a fitting spouse before you get married if, if there's no physical component of that relationship? Someone could say, I, I know what Scripture says about genuine community. I look at the, the New Testament church and see the, the deep friendships that they have and the way that they serve one another. But, I mean, listen, we, we live in the Western world where we have 50-hour work weeks and my life is so demanding and my schedule is so full. I mean, I, there's no way that I can live in that kind of relationship with other people with, with the job I have. That's just too unrealistic. And yet what Paul wants us to realize here is that the law isn't the problem. It's not God's commands that are the problem. It's not the standard that needs to change. We need to change. And that leads Paul to ask this question. What shall we say? Is the law sin? Is the law the problem? No. The answer comes in verses 7 through 12. God's commands are not bad. We are. 
Now, if you're a, a first-time guest, we don't give bad news like this every week, but a lot of weeks we do because it helps us to see the good news of the gospel. Is the law responsible for your sin? No, the problem isn't with the law. The problem is with us. Now, I want you, as we go through this passage, to look at the verb tenses that Paul is using here. He's using past tense verb tenses. He's describing kind of whenever the veil began to lift from his eyes, and he recognized that he was a sinner in need of grace. This is kind of his pre-coming to Christ experience. And so as you, as you read this as a Christian, you're going to be like, yeah, I kind of remember whenever I felt that. As a Christian right now, you're going to feel the weight of this even whenever you think about present sin in your life and the grace of God uprooting that even though you feel the conviction of it. If you're not a Christian, you're probably going to relate to what Paul is saying here because you probably feel a lot of the same things that he is feeling now. And in verse 7, Paul explained that he would not have known what sin was if it was not for the law. Look how he answers. He says, by no means, yet if it had not been for the law... I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, this is an insightful observation, isn't it? Let me ask, how do you know what sin is? How would the average person answer that question, what is sin? Someone might say, well, sin is anytime you do something that hurts somebody else. Another person might say, well, a sin is anytime you do something and you feel bad for doing that thing. Now, while those two answers are, are partially true in a lot of cases, those do not provide a, a helpful enough or complete enough definition of what sin is. Why? Because some sins that are committed in the world don't appear to harm anyone. You know, you might do something out of pride where you give this awesome gift where everybody thinks, oh, you are so great. People are actually benefited by it, but you know that the root of that was pride so that everybody would think how awesome you are. So, so that's not accurate enough. Or, or maybe you, you sin and it's like, well, obviously this feels good or I wouldn't do it. So it's not always that it brings guilt. Now, how does Paul say that we know what sin is? He said, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. His understanding of sin against a holy God did not come from what everyone was saying or what he personally felt or the regret that he might feel. No, his understanding of, the, of sin came from the law. I, I think it's important for us to understand this because, you know, a couple months back, we had this issue in our house where our smoke detector kept going off for absolutely no reason. So it could be a small change in humidity or something like that. And in the middle of the night, normally on Saturday nights before Sunday, it felt like it would just go off. And so obviously I'm kind of animated. So I run through the house, flipping every light on, causing just panic, you know, and I'm like, hey, everybody get up, you know. And, and that was like the first time. And I go searching through the house and there's, there's no fire at all. And so, well, why is it such an issue to have a malfunctioning smoke detector? Well, on, on one hand, it can make you, you know, run through the house thinking that there's panic and you're just kind of uh, responding to everything. On the other hand, uh, a malfunctioning smoke detector could be a terrible thing because there could be a literal fire in your house and, and you sleep through it. You never respond at all and the consequences are deadly. Well, sin has so corrupted our heart, calloused and distorted our hearts that they often can, can be similar to a malfunctioning smoke detector. 
And, and so some people just have this hypersensitivity and they always feel guilt. They always feel like God is mad at them because they've added all of these rules that God has never required. So they say like, well, you're good with God if you never get tattoos and you only read the King James Bible and you never wear a hat in church. And there's kind of heaping all of these things. And because of that, they think I can never approach God. There's no way that God can save someone like me because I am just so far from God. I can't, I can't live like that. And other people, their sin has distorted them in such a way that it's almost like they're sleeping through the fire that is taking place in their own house. Uh, they're doing what they want, when they want, and they don't care at all. Well, Paul here is saying our hearts need to be accurately calibrated, like like a smoke detector, detector that works properly. Our hearts need to be accurately calibrated to God's law so that we recognize sin as God says sin is, and that we recognize righteousness as God says righteousness is. Now, you need to know, even as a Christian, do you gravitate toward adding to the law? Maybe you're a really judgmental Christian, and so you think, well, you know, I, you know if, if that person's not reading their Bible for at least an hour a day, you know, then, then they're just not a good Christian. Or maybe you feel that guilt yourself. And so, so the Lord says, spend time with me. And you've kind of created, like, you know, unless I'm reading at least two days of my reading plan every day, then God doesn't love me. And you've kind of created this the standard that's not true. It's good to know God's law. It's good to know God's character so that you understand who he truly is. Uh, you also may gravitate toward, well, you know, God has, God has saved me. God is gracious. So it doesn't really matter how I live. We need to be calibrated to God's word so that as we pursue growth, as we rely on his grace, that we're being faithful to what scripture has taught us. So here Paul speaks specifically of his struggle with coveting. He said, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. He said, it was almost like that sign that we passed at, at dusk, not seeing it, right? I had no idea that I was breaking the law, but whenever I came aware of that, if I was to do that again, I now know that that is breaking the law. Well, Paul said, he didn't know that it was a, a sin to covet, to just want what other people have until he read that 10th commandment and it came to bear on his soul. Now, why does he use the command of coveting here? I think he uses it because if you read through the 10 commandments, it is the only command that you can't physically see with your eyes. It deals with the heart. I mean, if, if someone commits murder, you know that because there's a corpse there, there's blood at the crime scene. If someone steals something, then the theft is made obvious as soon as someone looks for something they don't have and there's something in your possession. The Lord says, keep the Sabbath day holy. And if you see someone working in their field through your window on the Sabbath day, you know that they're breaking that command. And yet Paul says that this unique command revealed that he was a sinner in such a way because it dealt with the heart. And we know that whenever Jesus speaks on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you know, this isn't just about kind of the physical outward actions. No, every law that God gave is truly about the heart. He looks at something like murder and he says, you've heard it said that if, if you murder, you've sinned against God. But I say, if you, if you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder against him. You've heard it said that if you've committed adultery, that's a sin against God. But if you lusted with someone in your own heart, that is a sin. That's an offense against a holy God. 
It exposes our sinfulness. And so, so Paul here was convicted as he heard this law. It's almost like, you know, if you've taken a COVID test and you're, you're going into it wondering, do I have a common cold or, or do I have COVID? Now, whenever those two purple lines show up and you realize that that test is positive, you, you know, oh no, I've got to cancel my plans. I've got to quarantine. Everything changes at this moment. This is not just a common cold. Well, Paul says here that the problem is not with the law. It's not the COVID test that gives you COVID, right? It just shows what's already working in your body. Well, it's not the law that, that makes you a sinner. It just reveals what is already at work within you, which is actually a means of God's grace of drawing you to yourself, of helping you see that you are not sufficient. And while this may sound like bad news, I want you to take great comfort in this. God knows that you are not perfect. God knows that you're a sinner. God knows that you need saving. In fact, the very thing that, that qualifies you to receive the grace of God is to recognize that you are a sinner who has sinned against him. The pressure is off. Do you understand that? That Christ came to seek and save the lost. So the moment that you say, I'm a sinner in need of grace. I can't meet this standard. God the Father looks at you and says, I know. That's why I sent my son to die for you. And that's why you're welcome at my table. And that's why I want to view you not only, not only as a servant or follower, but as my child. Well, that's great news. Doesn't that make you want to obey the commands of God? Whenever you see this, it's a loving framework that God has built for your flourishing to, to commune with him, the pressure is off as we realize the weight of sin before him. Well, well Paul continues in verse sin, and he says, but sin, seizing an opportunity, that word opportunity is a military word that Paul uses here, like whenever an army finds a strategic way to attack. It's like, okay, this is the ambush moment. He said, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. He said, it's almost like whenever I, I saw the law, it kicked the anthill of my sin inside of me. Like it kicked the sin of covetousness to where now I was just never satisfied. It's like the, I wanted to sin against God's law even more. I kind of even enjoyed the rebellious nature of it. He says that it was like sin lied dormant in me, almost like a big dog that you're walking through, you know, the yard and you're thinking, okay, I don't want to wake that dog up. And then the moment that it hears you step on a twig, it's like wow, jumping at you. He says, when the law came, it, it like woke this sin up inside of me to where I realized I was a sinner and I wanted to sin against God even more. Isn't that often our experience? And then in verse nine, he says, well, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now, this was really confusing for me this week because we know that chapters three and five in the book of Romans say that we are dead in our sin. So why does Paul say that before you know, the law came to bear on him, he was alive? Well, he's speaking here in his own self-perception. So spiritually, he was dead in his sin, but it helped him to realize that he was dead in his sin. He felt carefree. If you would have said, Paul, are, are you a sinner? Are you, are, are you in, in, the, in a bad place with God? He would have said, no. 
In fact, in Philippians 3, we hear him say, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisee. I know that I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. In fact, whenever I look at the law, I'm blameless. He would have said that he was totally good. And then what happens? The sin shows him that he's not alive. In fact, that he was dead. In verse 10, he says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. God gave his commands to us that we would know how to live. And yet, as we look at those commands, I mean, this is, I mean, this is really a, a part of my own personal testimony that many of you guys have heard. Whenever we see God's commands and, and we realize we can't live up to this, even though these are good things, good things to strive after, we can't live up to them. And they, they promise life but produce death because we can never meet the standard before God. In verse 11, he uses that word again. For sin, seizing an opportunity, finding this opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Sin is deceptive. It will make you look at God's commands and just kind of like downplay them and dismiss them and think, you know, this is basically who I am. I'm good. I don't need a savior. Or you can look at them and think, a God that would give those commands is so restrictive and feels so unloving that I would never want to be in a relationship with him to begin with. Well, in this case, Paul was deceived by his own self-righteousness. So what should we think about God's commands now? How should we view them in our life? Well, Paul gives us that answer in verse 12. He said, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. See, God's commands are good. The law is holy. God's commands are holy, righteous, and good because they were given by a good God. This is why whenever we read, we read 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we read that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for training, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God might be competent and equipped for every good work, that God's commands are not oppressive, but they're good that they expose our sin, that they reveal God's character, and they teach us how to live. And so I want to apply this in five ways quickly, and then, and then we'll be done. God's commands are good for us because they expose our self-deception. Paul said that he was deceived. We just read that. That through God's commands, he realized that he was not as good as he thought that he was. Now, let me pause for a second because I think that Paul represents many people in America. Paul represents a lot of people in Cincinnati. Paul could perhaps represent people in this very room that, that think, I'm, I'm good, I'm, I'm spiritually alive. And yet the law comes and says, no, you're not. You have to see that, that you are dead, that you are a sinner in need of saving. If we were to understand the gospel is good news, we must first feel the bad news that we have sinned against a holy God. I want you to, to review the Ten Commandments with me for a moment. And I, and I invite you even to use this in some of your evangelistic conversations where someone might say, no, I'm, I'm good. I, I think that I'll, I'll get to heaven one day because I've, I've tried really hard. Well, in Exodus 20, God gives these commands on Mount Sinai. And he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. 
These are the Ten Commandments that are given in Exodus 20. The first four deal with how we relate to God. Jesus summarizes that as loving God. The, the six that were on the second tablet, they, they speak all about our relationship to other people, and Jesus summarizes that in, in the words, love people. Now, it's important for us to look at these as, and just examine our lives and say, okay, if I think that I'm good before God and holy before God, then how do I measure up here? If this is a test that we're taking, who's actually passing? I mean, let's consider just four of them. Have you ever taken something that isn't yours? Be it a, a paperclip that isn't yours, if you really wanna look at you know, something that's on the smaller end of the scale, taking a long lunch on company time. Have you ever taken something that isn't yours? Well, God would say, that's theft, that's stealing, that's breaking command. If, have you ever told a lie about anyone or anything? Well, that makes you a liar before God. Have you ever lusted with some with someone in mind, in your heart? Well, Jesus says that's like committing adultery against them. Have you ever put anything, any person, any dream of yours before God, made it a priority before God, then, then you've committed idolatry against him? We've only looked at four. Should we keep going? Please no, right? Because by our own admission, we would say, I'm not good enough to be in the presence of God. After just looking at four commands, I have to admit, if I'm honest with myself, that I am a liar, I'm a thief, I'm an adulterer at heart, and I'm an idolater before a holy God. There is no way that I can earn earn my way into God's presence. There's no way that I can clean myself up. If there is any hope for us having a relationship with God, he is going to have to do something that cleanses that insurmountable amount of sin that we have committed against him. And he is going to have to give us an alien righteousness that is not our own that we could never earn for ourselves. And that's the good news of the gospel. That is exactly what God does, which leads us to the second use. God's commands are good because they reveal our self-righteousness. We kind of naturally create our own versions of righteousness, self-righteousness. I am right with God because. So sometimes that's comparison righteousness. I'm better than this person next to me. Sometimes it's theological righteousness. So I've read all of these books and I know the right answers. So I'm good with God. Sometimes it's family righteousness, right? So because this is the way that I lead my family, then, you know, I'm on God's good side. You can add to that a whole list, financial right righteousness, fitness, righteousness, you know, intellectual righteousness, educational, right? Like whatever it is, flexibility, righteousness, anything where you would say, because of what I am doing, I am right with God. But that isn't the story of the Bible. It shows us, as Paul has just admitted, that we are dead in our sin, that we aren't just struggling in the water in need of a life raft. No, we are on the bottom of the sea, dead in our sin, unless someone comes down makes us a new creations and breathes life into our bones, we are dead and hopeless. We are unrighteous and God must make us righteous, but that is exactly what God has done in Christ. If there is a passage of scripture that I would love for you to commit to memory, it is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is our only hope 
for being right with God, that Father God loved us so much that he made his own son bear the weight of our sin, the perfect and innocent son of God, he who knew no sin, perfect in every way, became sin, taking on every single one of your sins, past, present, and future, so that God the Father could look at Christ when he says, it is finished, and look at you and say, it is finished. That as Christ raises from the grave, accomplishing every work needed for your salvation, he could look at you and say, you are free and forgiven. You are righteous in my eyes because what Christ has done on your behalf. He loved you so much that he gave the most precious thing he had, his own son, to completely dismantle your self-righteousness and that you would rely wholly on the righteousness of Christ. How can you become righteous? Because a great exchange took place on the cross in which all of your sin was placed upon Christ's perfect shoulders and his complete righteousness was placed upon yours. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to just do away with all of these commands. He lived on this earth so that he could fulfill every command of God in your place. So that in the moment that you say, I recognize I'm a sinner and I'm trusting Jesus with my whole life, that he would bestow upon you a righteousness that you could have never earned. So that whenever God the Father looks at you, he'd say, that's my child, blameless, perfect in every way. Doesn't that make you want to live in a different way? Third, God's commands are good because they dismantle our self-sufficiency. Some people view the law as offense, and they think, well, I, I can never get to God because all of these commands. Some people view the law as a ladder, and each kind of command is a rung to get to God, and they find out, well, I, can, I can never climb this high. Other people view the law rightly as a mirror. Let's think for a moment, the law as a mirror. If you were to walk into the bathroom right now and see that there was mud all over your face and you're standing before the mirror, it would be absurd for you to see that mud and then take the mirror off of the wall and then begin to scrub your face with that mirror. Why? Because it has no ability to clean you up. Uh, the law, it, it has no power for transformation. It provides information. It, it shows you that you need another to cleanse you. And, and so it, it dismantles our self-sufficiency. I can't keep these. And yet there is one who has kept these. There is one who cleanses me. I can cling to the promise of 1 John 1, 9 that says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of all of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And so our, we come to the law and our, our self-sufficiency is completely dismantled and we behold the sufficiency of Christ to save us because he is perfect in every single way. This is one of the reasons that I love our missional community groups so much, because I can sit in a room with my fellow believers and that, that I, can, I can just sit there and be like, guys, I, man, this week has been so hard. I feel like I've failed as a father and you know, I, I'm not really, I, I feel like my progress is slow and someone can look at me and say, yeah, I'm right there with you. We are completely insufficient, but look at Christ. Look how sufficient he is. Look at the resurrection power that he has placed within you through the Holy Spirit. We can go and live, not under guilt or condemnation, but in this life that Christ offers. We see that God's commands are good because they show us God's character. God is holy, he is righteous, and he is good. The law is good because it came from God who is good. I know many of you perhaps are facing difficulty this morning. 
Maybe you're, you're looking at the job that you wanted that someone else got, or uh, you're thinking about where you thought you would be at this point in your life, and you're not. Maybe you're just like, I just want to be healthy for, for a change. And man, I've got this, this terminal illness that maybe nobody even sees, and I'm just kind of carrying around the, the weight of. I don't, I don't know where you're at, but I think whenever Paul is dealing with this sin of covetousness here, it ultimately comes from not trusting that God is good. Because we think to ourselves, well, if God is good, he would give me what that person has. If God is truly good, that I wouldn't be in this situation that I am in right now. And so Paul says, brother, sister, God is holy. He's always gonna tell the truth. You can trust his word. He is righteous. Even when something feels wrong, even when it feels like the world is spinning out of control, you know that God is doing right. God is good. He is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So come to me, trust me, because he is good, and his commands reveal that. And finally, God's commands teach us how to live. So maybe you're wondering, am I still obligated to live under these 613 commands? No, you are no longer under these commands as your standard of righteousness. So do you have to obey them to to be right with God? No, but if you are right with God, you probably will. You see, the Old Testament has something called the Old Covenant, where God says, my people will relate to me through these rules, through this standard of righteousness. And he says, one day there will be a new covenant that comes. Uh, A Messiah will come. He will uh, forgive people for their sins. He will cleanse them, give them a new heart, and they will be made new under a new covenant and want to live in a new way. This is why verse 6, as we read a couple weeks ago, says that we are no longer under the written code, but we now live in a new way by the Spirit. This is why Paul in Galatians 5 says that we are no longer under the law of the old covenant. We are now under a new law, the law of love. So now, now because the Holy Spirit has been placed in us, because we've been forgiven by God's grace, we want to love. We want to love God. And guess what? If you really love God, if God is working within you and you realize how he has saved you and is continually working within you, you don't want to put anything else before him. That first command completely changes, not, a, not as a duty, but as a delight to realize there's nothing better than the God I serve. If, if you truly realize the depth of God's love for you, you're going to love other people. So, so that anger is now replaced with compassion. You begin to keep those, those commands that in principle still apply because the Spirit is now at work within you. We see that God's commands are good because, yeah, they expose our sin. And in the height of our sin, we realize the depth of God's grace. They reveal God's character, that he is holy, he is righteous, he is good. And finally, they teach us how to live, that we would love God and love one another. Let's pray.